All right, we got Frank Hanna, owner of RevX Wealth. I had the privilege of interviewing Frank on the Invest the Difference podcast. I co-hosted there for a day and then saw Frank on the calendar for our podcast. So super excited to go in the weeds once again on a topic that we love to talk about selfishly. Thank you so much for coming on, Frank. Yeah, guys. I, uh, I'm excited to be here and good uh, catching up again, Antonio. Yes, sir. So, so let's, oh, go ahead. Yeah, no. yeah, I was going to say the, the Invest the Difference podcast, Tony, correct me if you think I'm wrong here, but my assessment of the listener base there is folks that are 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, entrepreneurs. Our, our podcast is the same pocket of like entrepreneurship, more towards the 30s and below, like 20s and 30s is kind of the pocket of our listener group. So there's a lot of like high income earners, a lot of high income earning entrepreneurs, successful business owners that they, they want to buy real estate. They want to be invested properly. They want to mitigate their tax liability while building their wealth, et cetera, right? Before this podcast started, we were talking pretty tactical on some things. We would definitely want to get into that. Before we dive into that, I'd just love to know, I'd love for you to be able to tell our listeners and just give us the timeline of your story because you've been in the business for a long time. You've uh, been in a couple different models. You've, you've gone through a good bit of tr- transition and shifting to now where you're at now as a super successful practice and business. So if you don't mind just giving us a kind of a timeline on where you've been, where you're at now. Yeah. So, so, so I grew up in like the restaurant, hospitality, bar, nightclub business. And like, since I you know, was 10 years old, my father was like, this is what you're going to do. You can make a fortune. It's great. You'd be an idiot to not do it. This is this is perfect. And as I got through that, like I went through college, out of college, worked worked within the business, you know, until I was about thirty. And then ultimately, it was like, I hate this. Like I don't love the day to day like operation. We were successful. We were making money, but I just was like, it was just not self satisfying for me. And it was, you know, it was affecting my personal life with like the amount of hours and stuff that I was putting in there. Um, we had um, invested in some real estate and that was, you know, successful. And I was more excited about doing that type of stuff. And at the same time, um, we were kind of getting into like planning, you know, as a family and as a business and leaning on kind of like our accountants, attorneys and different advisors that we had. And at about that same time, I was like, you know what? I really feel like there was a void in the market for independent, proactive, objective advice. So I was like, maybe I can like take my relationships and package, you know, that kind of objective, you know, advice and and guide people through like stuff that we've done, successes, failures. And at the same time, maybe package some of our real estate knowledge into, you know, guiding people like, like you said, that maybe wanted to invest in real estate, but just didn't know where to start. So I left the business, um, you know, had some, you know, tough times, you know, with my father and family as far as like walking away from that. But uh, ultimately, yeah, joined a like insurance-based broker-dealer outside of Philadelphia. So I moved away from Maryland, Delaware, where I grew up, started there, um, worked there for about four years. Um, They were more of a, um, you know, kind of insurance-based broker-dealer, but I did learn a lot there. But ultimately, you know, figured out that wasn't the perfect fit for me. Left there. Um, so that was 2009 when I started there. Left there in 2014. Went to a more, you know, independent broker dealer, I would say. Um, had a good run there. And then ultimately, we that real estate piece of our business really like exploded. And, you know, the group I was with was just not competitive there. 
So we ultimately made another move um, in in COVID while I was sitting on my couch trying to evaluate what what my next maneuver was. And we did that and rebranded as Revolution X and um, really kind of tried to hang our hat on kind of three arms of our business, one being, you know, independent asset management. And then the other being kind of like high level advanced planning, which would kind of fall within, you know, estate planning, business succession planning, you know, you know, high level tax stuff. And then another arm would be like our 1031 exchange arm. So we do a lot of 1031 exchange consulting for individuals that are selling real estate and, you know, looking for their next move. Um, so we'll guide them um, if they're looking for, you know, traditional hard real estate replacements. Um, and we also use some passive options for the right type of client. How, how so, often, go ahead, Tony. Oh, sorry. How often is a client fully integrated with you on all three, on all three pillars? Uh, great question. So I would say maybe like, maybe like a third. So like we, we do have a lot of clients that we do everything soup to nuts for, and they just like, you know what? I like you guys. I trust you guys. I want everything under one umbrella. If they're getting, you know, if they're getting older, you know, I want my wife or kids to know where to go if something happens to me. And then we have a lot that, you know, might use us for, you know, a, a piece of their, you know, asset management. Maybe they've got a several different advisors or, you know, we get a lot of clients that are referred to us on the 1031 exchange side. So they typically come in and if they are going through an exchange and they can't find that replacement property, they'll, they'll reinvest those proceeds with us and some of those uh, passive real estate options. And ultimately that's our first, you know, you know, appetizer with them. And they ultimately, you know, see value and, and hear some of the other things that we're doing and are like, Hey guys, can you take a look at some of the other things I've got going on? And oftentimes we'll get more involved with other aspects of their planning. For the, any advisors that are listening to this, like, could you explain the, flexibility that you have to run your business and grow your business and the offerings you can give to your clients in this platform and, and the system you're a part of now versus the platform and systems you've been a part of in the past. So I think, you know, again, when you're in this business and I, I love this business, I think it's the greatest business in the world. It's definitely a punch you in the face business and you got to be prepared to deal with that rejection. Um, and, uh, but once you get past that and you realize, hey, I've got something that people need. And if they're too stubborn to, you know, give us the opportunity to introduce something, that's on them. Um, but ultimately, like as you go up the food chain of like wealth, right? So I kind of said, hey, you know what? I want to target a certain type of client that's at a certain, you know, degree of wealth and their situation I know is complicated. And um, I'm good at, we always say we're good at tackling, right? So the, the guys that are having the guys and girls that are the most successful are typically moving the fastest, right? And if you, unless you can tackle them, slow them down to look at proactive planning ideas, they're never going to get it. So the firm I was with first, you know, they were more of an insurance based broker dealer. So they really just focused on, Hey, sell life insurance, sell annuities, high commission products. Like it was just, you know, they had a quota for us and ultimately, you know, I learned a lot of good things there, but I got to the point where I was like, I don't want to be that guy. And I don't want to be, you know, had that ax to grind with always, you know, in the back of my head, knowing I have to sell this certain type of product to enough people in order to, you know, live. So I decided that wasn't the best fit for me. And I moved to another firm, 
that, um, you know, still had a focus on those type of products, but they didn't, you know, they didn't force us to go down that road. Um, and then, you know, on the managed money side of things, you know, you know, a lot of these firms are really restrictive on how you can maneuver trade and, and ultimately we found a group that, or a broker dealer, it's kind of the best of both worlds. They give you support, um, in terms of, you know, compliance and resources and all that stuff, but they're not bagging you down with like, you know, too much compliance. That's just, you know, wasting your time and ultimately compromise your ability to move quickly for the investors. Could you give us an example? Like I'm, I'm, we're going through this transition right now. So like we're super interested in this selfishly, but there's other advisors out there that probably need to hear this too. Mm -hmm. Would you mind giving some like specific examples? Yeah. So, um, so we have like CFAs on staff, right? But, well, I'll take a step back. At the last group, we, we had CFAs on staff and the, the firm that we were work with was, was so big and they had so many advisors that they, they almost were like on autopilot. You know, they wanted to give you a fixed menu of products and they didn't want you to do anything outside the super vanilla norm because they were worried about, you know, risk, which I get. Um, but I looked at my practices like above more than the status quo practice. So, so one of the big reasons we, we left where we were was, you know, we had been investing and trading for, for years. We had CFAs on staff and ultimately we had clients that wanted to give us discretion, right. To be able to sell and maneuver. And, you know, they'd say, Hey, I'm paying you guys do whatever you think. I don't want you to have to call me, and wait three days for me to return your call so I could sell my whatever stock. So all our clients were saying, Hey, don't quit bugging me. Just go make, make the moves. And ultimately we kept going back to our broker dealer and saying, look, here's, here's a list of requests from our clients. We've been trading for 10 plus years. We've got the smartest guys on staff. Can we have discretion to be able to maneuver? And they would not grant it. They just were scared of, you know, doing something wrong. So that was a big reason why we went to the other broker dealer who has a, a form that we present the client when we first engage the client and say, hey, listen, are you guys comfortable with us, you know, maneuvering on your behalf and investing on your behalf without having to contact you every time we think we want to make a move? And uh, we did that. And I think it's, you know, hands down made, you know, a positive impact for our practice and, and for the client too. Like a master service agreement type of yeah, like a master service agreement where they just say, "Hey, less, you know, I mean, not not big maneuvers with with the accounts, but if we want to rebalance something or we want to, you know, buy or sell something, like I just my clients were too busy for me to track down every single time we, you know, we manage over a billion dollars of client assets, so you can imagine the amount of clients and accounts, and you know, there's there's clients that I. I call 10 times a year and I might talk to them once. Um, so it just got, it got really restrictive on, you know, being able to make the right moves with the handcuffs that the BD was like putting on us. And I, I get it. They had 13,000 advisors and they, they didn't want, you know, to essentially meet our needs or, or give us access to, to that type of thing or some of those more sophisticated types of products that, you know, Joe Smith out in Iowa might sell to his, uh, you know, senior 
senior clients that are on a fixed income living on social security. So I, I got that. It just, we kind of outgrew our practice and I think um, it was the right move and our, our business has ex- exploded since we made that move. Sure. So, so like having come from that same world, Landon and I could not like that could not ring more true. Um, and especially on the, the life insurance front, like that's the, the end all be all solution for everyone. If you have yep. a pulse, you're getting sold life insurance in that world. Yeah. Now, as you transition to the, uh, the more private wealth, you know, wealthy, affluent type of client avatar, where does that recommendation still ring true? Like, where is that still a suitable recommendation um, in your world? So I, there's absolutely still a need for life insurance. So I, we don't sell as much as we used to, uh, maybe because it's not as much of a focal point, but for you know, for, for like estate tax liquidity, right? So the estate planning environment has never been more favorable than it is right now, right? I think you can pass between husband and wife, you can pass roughly 25 million to your heirs, federal estate tax free. You know, that might sound like a big number, but you know, there's a lot of families that are well above that $25 million number. And they look at, you know, hey, if I pass away and I'm on the hook for five, 10, 15, 20 million in estate taxes, how am I going to pay for that? You know, maybe I've got a ton of real estate and I don't necessarily want to, I don't want my kids to race to have to sell my real estate at a fire sale, right? Or I don't want to give up $10 million in equities that I've got invested in the market and lose all the earning power of those dollars. And I don't want to take a loan out to pay the, pay the tax over time. And typically like the life insurance comes into play because you might get a, you know, you might be able to get a a permanent um, policy where you'll pay 10, 20, 30 cents on the dollar strictly for that death benefit to come out, to come into play to uh, create estate tax liquidity. So we, we do sell it in that instance and, you know, we'll, we'll do some, it, typically some guaranteed, you know, UL type stuff, um, where it's just how, how, what's the most, what's the least amount out of pocket that I can pay for tax-free death benefit. And then I'd say the other scenario that comes into play is just, yeah, for business succession planning, you've got partners in play and, and, you know, the last thing a lot of people want to do is have a, you know, a partner pass away and now your partners with that, their spouse, right? So we'll come in and do a buy-sell agreement and then typically have some death benefit to, you know, compensate the family to take out the other partner that's, you know, deceased. So I would say those are the probably the two, you know, most um, commonly used um, for those situations. And then, you know, when you when you have the younger, younger family, you know, we all think we're going to live forever. So if you've got the young entrepreneur that's running hard, and he's 20, 30, 40 years old, and he's got a wife, young kids, you know, it's, it's shocking to see how many people that don't, protect themselves with, with death benefit. Um, so, you know, we'll do that for, for people and, and, you know, it makes sense just to protect themselves because they're, 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 they are their most valuable asset, right? Sure. So now, now on the, the wealth accumulation side, um, you know, you have clients that rather like own businesses, they, there's, there's all different ways to accumulate wealth, but then, you know, real estate's a big focal point in your world. Yep. I'd love to, to walk through, cause like in our world, you know, you could do all the tax planning you want in the world, but if you have millions of dollars in net income, eventually it comes down to like, Hey, like 
we might want to look into buying some real estate given the tax favorability of it inside yep. of the US tax code. Yep. So why don't you walk us through like kind of how you have that structure? Then I'd love to talk about what that future could look like as bonus depreciation phases out as well. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, there's, there's a balance, right? So we have the one side of things. So we, we've, we kind of said, Hey, you know what? Everybody you talk to nine out of 10 people you talk to say, Hey, I've heard about people investing in real estate. I really want to do it. But most people are clueless on how to start and they might go buy an asset that they think is going to be great. And you can, you know, you can lose your shirt pretty quick if you don't know what you're doing. So we kind of said, hey, you know what, let's take some of our knowledge and resources and package, you know, attractive real estate deals where they can get some nice tax benefits, some some predictable mailbox money each month and not kind of take their eye off the ball of whatever their primary business is. Right. So we took some of those really attractive, sophisticated real estate deals and basically said, hey, you know what, we, we tried to mirror some of what the institutions were doing and some of the big private equity and hedge funds that that had those really attractive deals, but they don't want to talk to you unless you got five or 10 million bucks. Right. So we kind of said, hey, let's let's try to do that and and kind of find a little niche where we can get those investors that say, hey, you know what? I do want to have access to that. I do want to participate in that. But can I do that for 25,000 or 50,000 or 100,000? So we have a lot of deals like that where people can get access to. Um, and then on the other side of the things, if you talk to your most you know, wealthy clients, they all were doing the same thing, right? They were making money in their business. They were buying real estate and then they were trying to create that snowball of wealth, right? So they did 1031 exchange planning and they bought real estate assets and did cost segregation studies where you can get that big tax write-off. And ultimately they just did it over and over again. And ultimately that snowball of wealth, you know, grew, you know, incredibly rapidly. Um, and they were able to, you know, you know, take their wealth to another level by just being able to defer those taxes over time. So, um, you know, most people, again, that, that, you know, have been in real estate for a while will, will buy real estate. They'll hire somebody to do those cost segregation studies so they can kind of separate, you know, the asset and the equipment, you know, from the land and basically get that big write off on the front end of that. And then ultimately when they go to sell that asset, they can avoid you know, the recapture and capital gains on the, that piece by doing a 1031 exchange. So we kind of also tried to mirror that by doing some of these, you know, kind of high level real estate tax maneuvers and basically have those type of deals uh, accessible to the smaller investor and basically just say, hey, you know, every year, what can I do to shelter as much tax as possible, you know, through that type of planning, through your retirement planning, your you know, your, you know, retirement plans that you might have through your business and just try to keep as, as, you know, many dollars in your pocket versus sending them to the federal or state government. So, so how did you guys, like, how did you guys go about finding these deals? Like essentially, like, how do you build out these packaged deals for your clients without becoming the syndication fund itself. Does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. So we we spent a lot of time, money, money and energy over the last like three or four years kind of vetting the marketplace. And we basically looked at some of the biggest players in a variety of spaces. So, you know, we, we sought out and found partners that were the 
best in the business in, you know, multifamily syndicated real estate or, you know, the best in the business at, at kind of self-storage syndicated real estate or the best in the business at, you know, those convenience store gas station type deals where, you know, you can qualify for that accelerated depreciation. So we basically said, hey, you know, we're not equipped to to be that for everyone, but we have the time, money and resources to go out, and find those, the best of the best and basically did some heavy duty vetting and basically formed agreements with some of those groups where they looked at us as like a preferred investor. So they'll, they'll put together the deal, then come to a group like ours and say, Hey, Frank, um, here's our deal. Take a look at it. We have a team. We have several layers of due diligence where we're, we're looking at everything, every aspect of the deal. We're visiting the properties. We have a team in place that kind of vets that. And if it passes our smell test, so to speak, um, we'll put it on our platform and kind of market it to our clients um, in that regard. So so we, we have a ton of clients that are young, let's say, you know, between 20 and 35 net income between one to five million. You know, they're, they're making a ton of money, but they haven't had time to accumulate much assets. Yep. Um, some of them aren't married. So like a lot of active income, not much passive income at all. Yep. How do we do, how, how do we build out a portfolio with the proper tax consequences in mind, given the fact that we don't have real estate professional status? Like how do we... How do we obtain that professional status? How can we do it in such a passive way without having to just buy short-term rentals? Can you walk through that a little bit? Yeah. So, uh, so this this is kind of a it's a good question because it's it's it reminds me of like how I operate, right? So I I do own hard real estate, um, and it's it, you know it's kind of on autopilot, and I do get approached for a lot of deals, and and people are saying, hey, you know what, we should invest in this. We'll partner. We'll do this. But I know at the end of the day. If I start taking my eye off the ball in terms of my management, my clients, it's going to compromise them. So I've really kind of embraced, um, you know, trying to really capitalize on my uh, creation of passive income. So as I make money almost every month or at least every quarter, I'm saying, hey, all right, here's how much I've got allocated that I know I've got to pay in taxes. What are what are the you know different options that I can do to to park money to soften that tax blow, but everything beyond that, I, I keep those dollars reinvesting. So every time I build up fifty or hundred thousand or whatever, whatever, you can start with the smallest amount possible. Get those dollars reinvested and get that passive income working for you. And it might you, you might start small and it might you know might create you know hundred bucks a month or or whatever. But it, you know I've seen over time by just pay, taking those little maneuvers. And looking at my budget and saying, okay, how much do I have on the you know leftover that I can reinvest, and instead of leaving in that my checking account or you know spending it on something frivolous, get those dollars working as fast as possible, um, and then you'll you'll pick your head up in a year to five years, ten years, and and that passive income will ultimately be close to outpassing or out you know outproducing your active income. So that's, that's our goals. Like get, get working on your reinvestment and in, in, in passive income. So it can ultimately replace your active income and you can slow down at some point. And so that, I guess what I'm taking from that, I'm assuming that's what allows you to get that real estate professional status, which allows you to depreciate your properties against that passive income side. 
at, in a more impactful way. If your passive income is super high, when you go to bonus depreciate, you yeah. do the cost seg, that's where you see the impact. What yeah, exactly. about the folks that are like, hey, it's December. I'm going to have a $200,000 tax bill. Mm-hmm. I'm active in my business. Like, is there a way if they're not married, let's say they're single, is there a way for them to, you know, so, yeah, so benefit tax wise? Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll touch on that, like real estate professional piece real quick. So, so in order to, yeah, participate in those accelerated depreciation type deals, you either have to own the asset. And if you don't have enough money to buy that asset, if you're starting from scratch, the IRS guidelines, I think say you have to, um, you have to work in the real estate trade 750 hours per year, which breaks down to maybe like 13 or 14 hours per week. Mm -hmm. So depending, you know, if real estate's not your, you know, it's not your primary trade, that's going to be hard to hit, right? But for people that, you know, maybe realtors, you know, might have a lot of like young realtors that don't understand that they're making money and, and they don't realize that, hey, I could participate in that because real estate is my trade construction developers, you know, real estate attorneys, real estate accountants, what, whatever, they all could qualify potentially if they, if they meet that 750 hour per year criteria. If they don't, they've got to have enough passive income to be able for that to make sense, right? So unless they, you know, have started doing that and they either have rental income or, you know, dividend income from a stock portfolio, stuff like that, um, you know, it may not, not be effective, but that's where I think it comes down to the, the faster you start getting your dollars working for you, um, the sooner you can benefit from that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And if that, if that play doesn't you know, make sense, then look at what else is available to you. You know, if you own your own business, you know, you can write off, you know, a, a number of different things within your business to offset some of that income. Or if you have a qualified plan, you know, we do a lot of like analysis um, on, you know, 401k profit sharing, cash balance, pension plans. Like they're not the right fit for every business, but if you have a business with a relatively lean rank and file um, employee base, you know, we do a lot of those cash balance pension plans where people, you know, we'll meet a people and they'll have a simple IRA and they're putting in, you know, 13, 14, 15,000 a year. And, uh, you know, they're wondering why they're paying so much in taxes, but we, we've had uh, clients come in and their business kind of fits that, those metrics. And they've been able to put away three, four, five, six hundred thousand dollars a year and 90% of it go to their, you know, the, the, the owners or the key employees. And that's a really like nice maneuver. So we, we see a lot of people that don't take advantage of that, or they're not even aware of it. And their accountants and other advisors haven't recommended it. Yeah. So yeah. It's ultimately, so, yeah, go ahead. I was, no, I was going to say on the real estate side too, like if they, are there, are there short-term rental type of syndications out there, like short-term rental type of uh, bundled uh, opportunities out there for the folks that are like wanting to like buy real estate, but also mitigate taxes? Like are there short-term funds that are out there as well so, to help so, also yeah. the active income? Yeah. So there are, there are short-term deals that, um, you know, I, I, I don't know if I'd say they're, you know, one year, but maybe they're two years, you know, you know, t- 24 to 36 months, you know, relatively short. Um, it, you know, I'd say most of those deals are attractive from like an income perspective and maybe like a total return 
perspective, but um, a lot of those I would say do not provide like um, the big, you know, write off or, or cost seg or, um, you know, accelerated depreciation type deal. Um, but yeah, there, there are definitely some really attractive um, alternative real estate deals that are on the shorter side of things that people like because they don't have to tie up their money for, you know, four or five, six years. Um, and there, you can really get some nice, nice returns there. And even if we, you know, are on the hook for some capital gains taxes on there, we'll, you know, we'll get proactive with other aspects of their planning, see if we can do some tax harvesting or other things to kind of soften the tax flow there. Yeah, I think, Landon, correct me if I'm wrong, What in the, in the sense of short term, I think we were more so talking about like short term leases, given okay. the fact that that's like one of the potential loopholes, quote unquote, around not having to be the real estate professional, like yeah. Airbnb, VRBO yeah, yeah, type yeah. style. Yeah. Do do you have do those funds exist? Like where you know, do they are they have a, a thesis around cost segging at the end of the year? Yeah, so it's a good question, and uh, yeah, sorry I misunderstood that. Um, so I I've heard of some of those things that we haven't really gotten um, in that space yet, but I, I definitely um, have heard of those out there. Um, and there's you know there's there's been some crackdown on Airbnbs and different things like that. So I don't know if, um, how effective they're going to be long term, um, but I um, you know I would say that's not our sweet spot, but I I have heard of those out there. Sure. So, so switching to your world a little bit more, yep. um, inside of the consulting space, inside of your world, like we've, we've been scratching the surface of this world for, you know, about a year or two on the, uh, you know, the, the more affluent side, it's a laborious project management, um, mm-hmm. especially in the beginning, right. Onboarding a client, fully integrating them, um, and, you know, meeting with their professionals doing like fractional family office style work. How do you create enterprise value within your organization? Like, how do you make sure that you are no longer the person over time. Like, cause I, I've assumed like everyone that I meet in this business that is doing it well, doesn't see like a quote unquote retirement date. Yeah. Um, but just more so creating a system to where like your business can keep growing if you're not involved. What does your system look like in your, you know, your, your organizational structure? So I think we, we, we kind of, you know, consider ourselves like a mini family office and a really good resource hub. And I think, um, and it really comes down to, yeah, scalability, right? And, you know, I, I think we really take pride and and we'll see how this looks moving forward. But we've, we've been very selective with the types of clients that we bring on. And we may not do everything for every client, but we, you know, we, we do um, make sure that we know every aspect of what's going on. So I think, again, we're really good at like accountability. Um and we really kind of lay out what what's what are the goals for the client? You know, what are they responsible for doing and what are we responsible for doing? And I would say, you know, we're we're a pain in the ass for a lack of a better term, right? So we've got really good systems in place. We're really organized. And we say, hey, you know what? If this client told us they want to accomplish this, you know, we're going to bug them till they slow down long enough to make sure that they do what they promise they're going to do. And we're going to do what we promised to, that we're going to do to get them to that, to that common goal. And it's, you know, it's not, it's not always perfect, but I think that's where we've been able to separate ourselves and really, again, kind of mirror that family office where we know every aspect of the client's planning, even though we're not, you know, potentially, you know, managing every aspect of it. We know who the other players are, you know, we, uh, you know, 
were were very efficient, I would say, in that regard. How do you guys? How have you guys managed to do that without working ninety hours a week? Because Tony and I, and building our practice the last year, specifically in this fractional family office business owner space, like. We're trying to build that infrastructure right now and create that automation, create those processes in place. Like, could you maybe talk about the evolution? Like, I, I couldn't help but like smile and almost laugh like, as you were talking because like we want what you just said, yeah. And we're 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 our clients are all happy with us, but it's at the expense of our sanity a little yeah. bit. <laughs> I, I so, you. like, yeah, could you talk a little about that? Maybe. Yeah. So I so I don't know, you know, what your um, business model looks like or how many employees you have, but we're we're pretty lean, which I know might be counterintuitive to, to to what I just walked through. But, you know, I, I have like a couple like workhorses for, for me that are really detailed, like assistants and they work long hours, but we pay them like handsomely. And I really try to like, let them embrace the business as their own. They might not be owners on paper, but we treat them like gold. But I, I remember like having to hire that extra person or the next person and you get that anxiety like hey can i really afford this like is it gonna is it gonna make sense and then you know we hired you know a couple cfas that you know we looked at and said hey you know what i can't pull the strings on all these investments and make those maneuvers while i'm driving all day long to see five clients so that was another thing where we said hey you know what we need some support we hired some really qualified really organized people and worked out a deal where, you know, they got a piece of the action in terms of like, you know, the managed money fee or, or something that was, um, you know, in, there, there was incentives. Every, every employee we have, we have some really nice incentives in place. And I, I think we've been lucky to just find the right people. But, you know, I tell my, my girls all the time, I was like, if you can handle the load, I'd rather pay you, you know, a, ton of money than have to pay five people just do the same right. same job right so i think yeah. it really comes down to like hey getting the right people in place and the systems in place and i feel like our business has really taken off i'm i'm kind of like you know i don't know if i'd call myself the rainmaker but i'm more on the front end client facing position and I'm, and that's what i'm really good at is like you know handling the client talking with the client, meeting with the client. I'll drive you know, all day, every day, if it's worth it to see the client. And then I've got some people that I trust to really, you know, do a lot of the heavy lifting. Um, you know, I, I mentioned to you, like, um, our, the, this last couple of weeks has been nothing but chaos because we've got a lot of those tax sensitive deals that are in place. Um, but, but the people I have in place, like, I take care of them well. They know, hey, if I need something, you know, my my employees like regularly, I'll see them emailing people at 11, 12 o'clock at night just because they know, you know, the harder they work, we're going to take care of them. So I, I, I love seeing that type of thing. And like my one main girl, like, uh, you know, she, she worked her tail off the last two weeks and she's really good year round. But like I just bought her in a front row Kenny Chesney tickets to to take care of her and say, say thank you. So I think it's really comes down to okay. finding the right people and then don't be scared to pay them a little more than the status quo. I talk to guys all the time and they're like, what do you pay your girl? And I, I tell them what I pay her and, and they're blown away, but I know she does the work of 
two or three girls. Yeah, one one high performing employee can outweigh three to four other people if you if you have the right person. Yeah, and you and you got to be able to like recognize. I've hired people and made mistakes, and you got to realize you, you got to rectify that mistake quickly versus just hanging on. And it's easier to just let them keep going. But um, yeah, I think you know I I look at overhead a lot, and and you know I think all all in what we pay our employees and our cost of overhead and everything else is really lean based on our production. Um, but yeah, I would say don't, don't be afraid to hire that extra person. If it's the right person to, to break you guys away from non-money making, you know, activities, you know, you guys are probably good at, good at selling, right? You want to be out in front of the client marketing, the new clients, anything that can be handled behind the scenes. Like, you guys should try to find yeah find ways to like slowly remove yourself from all that type of stuff. But you you know you can't have you know the wrong type of person doing that because you know a lot could go wrong. But yeah, and, I, and then I think oh, yeah. sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say I, I remember like being so panicked and nervous when I like wasn't making a ton of money and somebody said hey you know what you need an you need a personal assistant or and I was like man I can't I can't afford that. Um, and I ultimately did it and I was like, man, this is, this is great. I could take my production level to like new levels by just handing off some of that stuff. But in, until you get to that comfort level, you know, it, it, it's nerve wracking to be able to, you know, add that. The analogy I heard yesterday, I was listening to a podcast specific to this industry and, uh, the, uh, the analogy came to McDonald's and uh, the advisor is like the person at the cash register, yep. meeting the customers, helping figure out what they need. And then they punch in the, the order. And then everybody in the back is actually taking care of delivering that order and delivering that value to the client of, from a deliverable standpoint. But if the person at the cash register is taking the order, <clears throat> communicating to the client, taking the order, then running in the back and making the burger yeah. and putting the fry and dropping the fries in, like the, 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 the customers would be like, well, what? fuck's going on here? Like, yeah, what's, yeah, yeah. you know, what's the deal here? So it's, yeah. it's just a good analogy that goes to our business. I thought. That yeah, no, that's, that's good, you know? man. I haven't used that. I might take that, but um, yeah, I think, you know, I, I, again, like, I think you just, you want to be that guy, like, because like our role is really impactful um, for that client. Right. So that the advice and guidance we can give them is, 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 can transform their lives. Right. That's part of the reason I left the restaurant business. I was like, I don't, I'm not getting, satisfaction out of coming up with a creative lunch special or a, a bar, <laughs> a, a fancy bar drink, you know, is that really going to make an impact on somebody's life? So I left, but my, my work ethic, like I, I used to, you know, sleep like three or four hours a night. Right. So I always was on call with my phone and I still kind of operate that now. Like if, if a client calls me or emails me or texts me and is like, Hey, I need something. I got a question. Even if it's not a big deal, like I respond like that, even if it's, the middle, you know, middle of the night and I'm, I'm, I can't sleep or something like that. And I've had a lot of clients go, man, you're just always available. Like where I've got other advisors that I'll call and it might be, uh, they're on vacation and they unplug for the entire week. Like I never, ever unplug my wife and kids probably <clears throat> hate me, but I, I just don't unplug. <laughs> and I think like all that you said, so gold, like the concept of buying back your time to ultimately allow yourself in your zone of genius, which on our end is client acquisition and relationship management. Yep. I mean, giving high level advice, but then parlaying that with taking on the right clients. I think in the beginning when, when Landon and I started this thing, we were just like frantic to get clients because we had this head trash around like, oh, people making $10 million a year don't want to talk to us. But you start to realize that 
people that are in high levels of business, they don't know what they don't know. And they, yeah. they understand that and they outsource quickly to people like us. Yeah. So taking on that right client is probably the most important thing because the wrong client is a headache no matter how big they are. Yeah. That, no, it's a great point. Like I, um, yeah, when you get in the business, you, you want it, you'll talk to anybody that'll talk to you and you'll take them on as a client. And unfortunately, you know, you get on the hook promising the toughest people, the world, and it's just, it comes down and it's not worth, uh, you know, the juice is not worth the squeeze. Um, but then, yeah, you come, you know, I think once you get a comfort level with like, being in the business, knowing what value you can bring to people and then realizing like, Hey, the, the, the wealthier, you know, higher income earning fast moving individual, those are the ones that we can typically like help the most. Right. But you're intimidated. You know, you, you go, you go through and say, Hey, well, that, that guy's, that guy or girl is, is loaded. They, they must have, you know, they must have done all this stuff and they probably have an arsenal of advisors and I'm not even going to waste my breath approaching them. But ultimately, if you get get through, those are the ones where you can uncover a bunch of issues. It's like uh, somebody else used the analogy of like the the hot girl in the bar that's standing, you know, in the corner, you just that she's got to have a boyfriend. So I'm not even gonna waste my time going up to talk to her. So mm-hmm. and oftentimes yeah. she's, she's alone and because nobody, everybody's scared to talk to her. So somebody that's used somebody told me well. that with like the yeah, the high, typically the guy that seems like they've got it all together. Those are the ones that typically don't. So, well said. Yeah. Well, said. well, as we near the wrap up point here, Frank, this has been awesome. I mean, we could talk about this literally for hours upon hours, which I'm sure we'll, we'll connect offline about it as well. Yeah. Um, we have this thing at the end of every one of our podcasts. Our, our podcast is called the consistency wins podcast. So consistency is everything to us. It's, you know, our, our whole mantra. Yeah. What does that word mean to you? Like where, how does that show up in your life? It's good. I, I was like, I saw the headline of your thing and I started thinking about this and I think, um, you know, it's, it's, it's habits form the future, right? Like if you're not consistent in what you're doing, um, you know, it, it's going to be hard to, to have ongoing success and be able to really like track that and really, um, you know, calculate that. So, you know, one thing I started doing when I was, when I first got into the business and this was the first firm that I worked for and I will, um, give them credit for that, but the, yeah, they, they always said habits form the future, you know, start methodically, like getting into doing these good, good habits. And ultimately something that seems like maybe a headache or a lift early on just becomes your day-to-day operation. So habits form the future and ultimately they, they can create success. So I, I, I don't do this as much as I, as I used to, but like, like thought indicators, right? So I used to like get up every day and I would think about like my, I would take 20 minutes to like think through my day and say, all right, what are the things I want to accomplish? What am I um, grateful for? Like what's going on in my life that I'm really positive about and, and lucky. And, you know, it, it kind of takes those little, you know, things that might be bugging you at the time and, and make them a little bit smaller. So I would like start my day with that. And then at the end of my day, I, w- I started a habit of like reflection. So you could have the worst day ever. And, you know, just be questioning your ability in the business. And do I really want to do this? And I would stop and say, okay, well, what were the one or two things that happened today that were positive? Did I have a nice conversation with one client who was really happy that, you know, something went right or whatever? It could be the most minute thing. 
But I think that consistency of, you know, really like laying out your daily goals and then your long-term goals and then following through, even if you don't meet those goals, like the, the consistency of, you know, really reflecting and holding yourself accountable, like it, it becomes easier and easier as you like go through life. And um, yeah, then it's just like autopilot. And I think it really um, will benefit you long-term. I love it. I love it. Len, you got anything else? No, Frank, this was an awesome interview. Super selfishly awesome for us. And I know our listener base is going to love this one as well. Yeah. Uh, we got, we, we talked business. We talked about the industry. We talked, got a little tactical on real estate. Uh, I, got, I guess closing, closing question. Uh, is this bonus depreciation going away? Like, is that going to really impact real estate investors in a, in a dramatic way? Like are, are cost segs still going to make sense? Like what, could you just talk through like that briefly before we wrap up? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So yeah, so this this um, bonus depreciation, yeah, it was part of Trump's Tax and Jobs Act. Last year it was 100%. This year it was 80%. Next year it's 60 and ev- eventually going to phase out to zero um, unless Congress can vote and come to some agreement to extend it or bring it back in some form or fashion. But, um, you know, I'm not optimistic right now based on, you know, Congress not being able to agree on anything. Um mm-hmm. So I think time will tell, like, I, you know, it is, it's been such a big um, tool for, for real estate investment that I, it, it would be, um, it would definitely be impactful if that completely goes away and stays away. My, um, you know, my intuition says that they'll come to some type of like agreement to create some type of incentive like that going back. And I think it really comes down to like this next in this next uh, administration and who's going to get elected. And, and that's going to dictate a lot of that. So not to get into politics, but if, uh, if what I think's going to happen happens, I think we'll be all right long-term. Us as well. We'll leave that in. <laughs> well, Frank, thank you so much, man. Appreciate yeah, your time. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Appreciate it.